Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me, and today I have a good one for you. I mean, I think they're all good, but I really enjoyed these conversations, and I really think you will too, and if you don't, I'm doing it wrong. I don't think I'm doing it wrong. So first up, I've got Matt Levine, the great Bloomberg writer whose Money Stuff newsletter is always a must-open for me, and he's been a crucial resource for two of this year's biggest stories, the crypto boom and bust, and Elon Musk buying, not buying, buying Twitter. He's on today because he just took over the entire issue of Business Week to write about crypto. And I wanted to know why he thought that was a good idea in the fall of 2022 when everyone seems to be done with crypto. He's got a good answer. You're going to like it. And yes, we talked about Elon a bit, too. And then I talked to Janice Min, who's been running important publications for a long time. She's now running Ankler Media the Hollywood-based newsletter startup. I am a paying subscriber. We talked about why she's doing a startup, period, because she could definitely have a normal, big-deal media job if she wanted to, and why she and so many other folks, like Ben Smith, who was just on the show this week as well, are trying to launch new businesses around newsletters. We also talked about her time running The Hollywood Reporter, her brief stint at Quibi. Remember Quibi? And then we had a real nostalgia trip talking about her time running Us Weekly, which for a while was one of the most important and most profitable media operations, period, which is wild. This is back in the first decade of the 2000s when the internet definitely existed, but magazines were weirdly still really important. And the people who ran them were celebrities, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about now. Um, We talked about what it's like to be an editrix and and have your photograph taken while you're having dinner. Mind-boggling. Uh, We talked about all of that. I would still be talking to her if I could, but there are time and space constraints, even on podcasts. So enough of me talking. Here's me talking to Matt Levine. I'm here with Bloomberg's Matt Levine, who uh, I worship, and I assume many of you do as well. Uh, You can tell I worship him because every time he writes a newsletter uh, for Bloomberg, I end up screenshotting some of it and and tweeting it out. And I'm sure I could find better things to do with my time. But here we are anyway. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for coming on. You are here because you sent me a note and said, hey, I wrote a 40,000 word piece about crypto. Can I come talk to you about it? I don't think you screenshotted it yet. I didn't screenshot that yet. Uh, I'm still reading it, honestly, because yeah, yeah. it's 40,000 words. It's long. Um, but first I thought it was a joke. And then I said, no, it's it's real. You wrote a 40,000 word <laughs> essay about crypto um, in late October 2022. Um, so here's my question. Why? Well, I started it earlier. Um, why? Uh, the main reason is, I'm going to give you two reasons. I mean, oh, before you start, uh, just to be clear, this is the entire issue of this. Yes, week, it's a whole week. business. So week. it's it's the whole Megillah. There is nothing else you can learn from Business Week this week other than what Matt has other to say about crypto. crypto. Uh, so a couple of reasons. One, they asked me to. Two, when they asked me, I thought. This is really fun because crypto is a big enough topic that it will take a whole business week, but it is also a small enough topic that it feels like you can kind of start from the beginning, from kind of the first principles of like, what is Bitcoin and go from there to everything that exists in the crypto space today. Everything sort of grows out of like one starting point and you can trace it to 
all sorts of very different complicated topics in modern crypto. And so that just felt like a really fun writing challenge to be like, we're going to like start from first principles and explain everything in crypto. Now, even at 40,000 words, you can't actually explain everything in crypto. And that ambition was like somewhat thwarted, but like it felt like a good ambition to have and a good topic to have that ambition on. So that just felt like a fun thing to do to say, look, if you know nothing about crypto, I'm going to start at the beginning, and explain everything about crypto to you. I'm going to hear from a lot of crypto people saying, you didn't explain my thing at all. But I think that like, uh, as a rough cut, that's a thing you can almost do. And then while they complain about it, they will promote, they'll promote your story while complaining about how bad it is. So yeah. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. I'll tell you, honestly, the other aspect of it is that it was, they asked me over the summer and I was like, ah, you know, the summer is always really boring for writing my newsletter. So if I take some time off the newsletter and write about crypto, that'll be a nice, like, that'll give me something to write about. And then of course, the summer was the summer of Elon Musk trying to get out of the Twitter deal. And I spent a lot of time frantically juggling these two things. But um, I definitely felt like it was a nice time to to pause the newsletter. Uh, and and I am going to ask you about Elon before we're done. Sure. But but back to the why. Let's start with the the timing. It's October 2022. If you had written this in January or February when everyone was throwing their money at, at anything related to crypto, I would have said, oh, that makes sense. Now we are in a crypto winter. I don't need to relay stats to you, but but lots of people who were interested in this stuff six months ago seem to be not interested in it anymore. My editor keeps saying, I think you should do a Web3 or crypto story. I keep saying, what's, what's there to write about? So why write about it now when interest in the topic seems to have, have flagged significantly? It has flagged significantly. And who is the audience for this? Who wants to read 40,000 words on crypto? Who doesn't know about crypto to begin with? and says, all right, I want to dive into this. So let me start with the first question. At the height of crypto frenzy, it was sort of hard to get any perspective on it, right? It's just like number go up, you know? And I think there were a lot of like very outlandish claims that were being made about crypto that might've felt false, but then like number went up. So like you couldn't really you couldn't argue with them, as it were. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you just have a little bit more perspective. You can say like, okay, this thing that looked like a Ponzi turned out to be a Ponzi, right? It went down to zero, right? And then like, you can also say like, this project is still going, you know, like these people are still like working on this thing because they think they actually have a good project rather than because like they swindled people into, into like buying a coin because everything was going up. So I don't know, like it just feels like a more like intellectually like sensible thing to talk about when it is not at the very height of the bubble. But I do think like one argument of the piece is like, it didn't like go to zero, it didn't just go away. Like if you hate crypto, like you can't declare victory yet, right? Like there's still something there and you can be a little bit more balanced about what the thing is because like people aren't like furiously, you know, pumping their bags on Twitter. So that's part of the answer. And then who's it for? I mean, like, I hope that some number of people who are sort of, like let's say general business creators, people who are interested in business or finance and like sort of economic questions will say, okay, fine, now I have to learn about crypto and we'll sort of like get something out of this and we'll get a balanced like understanding of like what crypto is. I also, you know, in my day job and also in this, like I'm always sort of trying to write in a way that is comprehensible and engaging for like a, like a lay audience, like people who are not like deeply interested in the topic. But I'm also always trying to, write something that feels insightful to people who are in the topic every day. And it's a tough straddle. Yeah. And in this in particular, like, you know, be, because you are sort of starting from first principles, I feel like there's an, a, there's a, a possibility of saying like, 
here's like the sort of like larger structure. So if you're like working on like, you know, like a, a corner of DeFi, I'm hopeful that I can sort of give you like broader context to like the thing that you're doing every day, even though I'm not necessarily talking about the particular thing that you're doing every day in any, any technical detail. I mean, if I was imagining you talking, uh, my version of your answer would be, I am interested in this. I am um, intellectually interested in this concept. That's what I do in my day job. And this is another version of that, um, except I'm getting to do it at magazine length. That's definitely true. I, I am writing for myself. I mean, the main reason I'm writing it is to like figure it out for myself and try to put it in that context for myself. But I do think that like, you know, I'm hopeful that I'm never like the 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 sort of top expert on any particular topic mm -hmm. that I'm writing about. So, I, and I am writing partly for an audience of those top experts. But I'm hoping that that my thought process like is helpful for even experts to like contextualize what they're doing and sort of have a sort of broader understanding of it. And to be clear, I mean, so in the in the intro to your essay, you say the goal is to convince you that crypto is interesting. It's found some new things to say about some old problems. That even when those things are wrong, they're wrong in illuminating ways. But it's not just an intellectual exercise for you. You're you're writing about this because you think it's worth knowing about. Meaning that you think something is going to be something is going to come of this. And that was one of the arguments you heard all over the last year from crypto defenders was. This is like the internet, and there was a lot of bullshit in the first web boom, but if you dismissed the internet in 2001 and said, I'm glad we're done with that, you would have made a terrible mistake. So I understood that argument, and then my retort, and many other people's retort was, okay, but in 1999 and 2000 and 2001, you could look at the internet and go, oh, I can imagine some basic use cases for this right now or in a year or whatever, whereas crypto still seems pretty hard to figure out how this will impact a regular person's life at any time in the future. Do you have, have you figured out an answer to that last part? I'm like on the skeptical side of that. I don't necessarily think it's the internet. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting it at 0% probability, but like when I think about what's interesting in crypto, I'm not like, oh, the web three thing where you can like charge a little bit of money for your advertising data. Like that doesn't grab me as the most compelling use case for crypto. Honestly, and this is my personal biases too, but like the thing that I think is really interesting in crypto is that crypto has built this parallel financial system and it's largely for trading crypto. And you can say, well, that's all worthless. And like, you know, it's all self-contained and you could just like put it on an iceberg and send it off into the ocean. But like it is aesthetically and intellectually interesting. And one thing is that that's fun for me. But another thing is that that's fun for like high frequency traders and hedge fund people who have, you know, in many cases left their traditional hedge funds and high frequency trading shops and gone to the crypto world because it's just like more fun. And also because you could make a lot of money very quickly. And one thing that that means is like there is an argument that that financial system is in some ways good. In some ways it's very bad. Like there's a lot of mistakes made, but like is both like intellectually and practically attractive to people in finance. And one possibility there is that it will, like the financial system that it's recreating will be like so good that it will take over some of the traditional financial system. So on the financial side, I think crypto is at least a, a real and sort of like fierce competitor to traditional finance in a way that like some of the Web3 stuff I don't really buy. 99.99% of the world can can spend their entire life not knowing what high frequency trading is. Sure. It exists. Uh, it's a financial system that exists entirely out of their view. If it does impact their life, they're unaware of it. Is there a version of, of crypto that you sort of see a parallel to that where we all go about our business and then some people are furiously trading crypto and that's interesting, but but not consequential directly to the rest of us? 
Oh, sure. Absolutely. But like not consequential directly. The, the word directly does a lot of work there, right? Like, I mean, is high frequency trading like important to your life? No, it's definitely not. But like, does the existence of our modern market structure make it like 1% more efficient for companies to raise capital? Does that make it like 1% more likely that like some biotech will be able to raise venture capital and like find a cure for cancer, you know, like maybe like, I think that like, if you work in the, in the traditional financial system, like you're like moving bits around all day, but your justification to yourself is that we are like making real world business slightly more efficient. And in crypto, like that's sort of often a hard case to make because you're actually just moving like crypto tokens around and like none of them tie to a real world business. But I think there's like an argument that if that system works well enough, then you bring in some of the real world business and then you are having this very indirect effect on people's lives where no one's like using it, but like you're making the financial system more efficient, but the, which is like a, you know, slightly valuable thing. We're recording this on Wednesday. You published Tuesday. Um, what's something you're now in hindsight remorseful that you didn't get into the piece? Oh, I wish I had time for this or I totally neglected to talk about that. And someone pointed it out to me on Twitter and they're right. You know, it's funny, like, like the main thing that people are putting out on Twitter is like, you didn't talk about my token, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't feel that bad about that. The thing that I sort of made a choice not to include, and that I think is like a really big topic that, that, you know, I wish I had more space for is, is just like, I do very little on the regulatory treatment of crypto generally, both like, is it a security and like, what sort of banking regulation should there be? And those are like really important questions for the future of crypto. And they're really hard questions because crypto is so international and those questions are so about like national governments. And there is a real divide between people who think that like crypto is a valuable innovation that requires a lot of like sandbox to make innovate, to like make new products in. And people who are like, this is all scams and we need to protect consumers from it. And like both of those things are kind of true. And so it's a really hard question. What is the thing that is going to sustain crypto now that we've we've demonstrated that doesn't always go up, that it's not a hedge against inflation, that it pretty much moves in line with tech stocks, that a lot of the arguments for it sort of have gone away and that it's no longer easy to just sort of like say crypto and make money or say blockchain and make money immediately? What What is going to sustain the group of people? And it's going to be harder to get investments in, in Web3 and crypto stuff. What is going to sustain this ecosystem so it turns into something or, or becomes something of permanent value? Well, I mean, there are sort of two sides of it. One is like crypto things, crypto projects were a sort of substitute for tech stocks. And you're right, they're correlated with tech stocks. I think that like, if you're just like trying to raise money by saying buzzwords to VCs, like you've stopped saying that buzzword and gone back to some other, you know, now you say AI or whatever, but uh, it's plausible that some number of projects actually made sense as like, you know, web three crypto projects and will continue to raise money. And it'll be a sort of an alternative way to do tech stocks. And I think that like the like financial structure of it remains appealing to VCs. And so like, there's still probably some marginal benefit to being like, it's a crypto thing rather than like, it's just a tech stock. And then on the other side, it's just like, you know, these exchanges, these financial products continue to exist. Um, it's some amount of it is gambling. Some amount of it is like people who made a lot of money. You know, if you bought Bitcoin at like 100, like you're still up a lot and you're like, I got to do stuff with this money. And so I think that like the, the, the financial stuff continues to exist and people continue to make money. And so building out that financial system remains a, a thing that people are definitely still working on. What percent of people do you think have finished the article? If you had to guess, uh, I'm just going to lie and be like 40. <laughs> okay. 
Everyone I know has finished it. I intend to finish it. I wish I had finished it before I talked to you, but uh, I did read it. Some people have finished it and they're like, it was good. Um, But no, it's hard. It's also like, I hope it is like somewhat, you know, you can dip into the parts you think are more. It is. You can, it's definitely skimmable. And by the way, it tries to be sort of structured so you can be like, oh, here's this section, you know? And, and sadly, um, I've been reading it on on Instapaper, which is maybe the worst way to read it because it's probably it's the worst way to read it. it. Apple it's News strips. has a fun like layout for it. That yeah, there's great art. There's good Matt Damon jokes that are visual. Um, I definitely feel also you could buy the physical magazine on I think Friday. I don't, I don't know where you find a physical magazine, but yes, you could do that. So Elon was probably going to own Twitter. You know, fingers crossed. Yeah. When does this air? Fr- uh, this this will air Thursday. So okay. today he might so own probably. it. Do you imagine that your Elon Twitter writing pace is going to slow down and, and you won't be writing about him daily after that? Or do you imagine you've got six months more as he goes and tears up Twitter and the thing blows up? Oh, no, I think it'll slow down drastically. In part because like Elon tearing down Twitter is not like exactly the wheelhouse of money stuff. Like I'm interested mm-hmm. in kind of the financial side more than the the sort of like business and, um you know, state of the world politics side and so like when he like reinstates trump like i don't see myself writing a lot about that but there's a lot of financial stuff still to be done right i mean he's like he's like borrowing 13 billion dollars from banks and like he's going to market that debt which i think will be really funny he's got all these co-investors who are you know some of them are trying to weasel out of the deal and some of them are like no we love it it's great so i think there's going to be more to write about but i don't think you know it will no longer be a public company and you will no longer be finding new excuses to get out of the deal every day. So I think the pace will slow dramatically and I'll have to find something else to do. So again, all the caveats, but if Twitter, if Elon does own Twitter, what is the story of the world's richest man deciding more or less on a whim to buying an important social network, then trying to get out of the deal and then being basically forced to do the deal. What is, is there a lesson that we have drawn from that? Is there something that we've learned over the last six months about this? Well, I think one lesson is that like the rule of law works really well in the Delaware Chancery Court. Which was an open question, right? Which I think was a, it was a, I was I was like reasonably confident, but I think people were not, and and I, I, I had my moments of doubt. Um, and uh, that Elon might say Elon might effectively be beyond the law, any laws that he could literally do whatever he wanted, and that no court could stop him from doing whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, and it's funny because um, buyers do get out of deals, right? And buyers do like the stuff that he that his lawyers wrote in court. Like it's all like stuff that people try, you know. Uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes they renegotiate prices. And like what Elon did was just tweet the most outrageous things so that it was clear that he he was he was just sort of like thumbing his nose at the rule of law in a way that uh, was sort of upsetting. And that just didn't work. You know, like if 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 he did if he if he had never tweeted and if his lawyers had just tried to get him out of this deal, like he probably would have saved four bucks a share or something. I mean he might have gotten out of the deal. But because he was so blase about the rule about like just like the sanctity of contracts or whatever i think um delaware lawyers reacted poorly to that and i think you know in the rest of the world uh and in the rest of um you know the american legal system like it does feel a little like the rule of law is 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 under threat and uh and uh you know I'm not sure Delaware corporate law is the most important little corner, but at least like at least that's a win. It's funny that that's the bulwark against against the demise of society is a is a is a Delaware judge. Yeah, but like you know, like there's a lot of money in that, right? Like Delaware really cares about corporate law working because like that's where the money is. In some ways, it's like not. It's like 
it's like, oh yes, of course, like capitalism worked. <laughs> like this, the sort of legal structure of capitalism worked. I don't know. I mean, the other thing, like the thing that I find fascinating is like, th there's like the world's richest man who has like very strong political views and like, you know, keeps tweeting in favor of like Russia and China invading countries. And he's taking over this platform for discourse that, you know, I think like American political actors certainly think is important because they like, you know, they're there and like they have hearings about regulating it and whatever. And also he clearly thinks is important. And he says it's the public square and he says, I need to do this not to make money, but to like make discourse better. And so everyone thinks it's really important. And he's a guy with very particular views. He's like, I'm going to come in and take charge of this important platform. There's no regulatory or democratic oversight of that. Like there's no one is like, is that a good idea? Like, there's no one who has the power to approve that, except like antitrust, right? Like they're, they're, they're like approval processes, but they're not sort of aimed at that question of like, is the world's richest man being in charge of discourse good? And, you know, that's because it's, it's, it's like just, it's just, it's just a corporation. It's just regular, you know, business stuff. There's no democratic accountability for it. Yeah. What a bummer to yeah. leave it there. But that's what, that's what we've been grappling with for the last several years, right, is, is, is not just Twitter, but all of these internet giants that are effectively not beholden to anyone except maybe capitalism. Right. And like, I don't know, when it's like Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, you're like, well, he's the Facebook guy and he started Facebook and like, it's, you sort of think of the thing as being connected to him. But like, Elon's just going to buy Twitter. Like, he's not, he's not the, he's just like, he's like that platform for discourse i would like to own it and so he just will we're gonna leave it there matt levine great to talk to you thank you for writing i'm gonna say forty thousand words about crypto I'm about halfway through but it feels much shorter uh you should all read it thanks again all right thank you thanks again to matt that was great we're gonna hear from janice min who's also great but first a word from a sponsor support for this show comes from fiverr the world's largest marketplace for freelance services in the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. I'm in the studio today, very exciting, talking to Janice Min. She's a publishing veteran. It's a polite term. It's an accurate term. She ran US Weekly. Sorry. Oh, my God. My God. She ran <laughs> Us Weekly. Here, let's try this again. Janice ran Us Weekly. She's laughing because I called it US Weekly a second ago. Uh, the US Weekly college rankings. It was a big thing. <laughs> it's going to be this kind of interview. Back when that, when Us Weekly was maybe the most influential magazine in the United States. Then she had a long stint running The Hollywood Reporter, which she transformed from a traditional trade magazine into something that normal people would want to read. She had a very quick pit stop at something called Quibi. Uh -huh. 
And now she's doing something that's very unlike all of that. She's running the Ankler, which used to be an excellent Hollywood industry newsletter and now has ambitions to be much more. Welcome, Janice. Hi. Thanks, Peter. Good to see you. Delighted to have you in New York. This is how things have changed. You are now in New York for Advertising Week, which is not a thing I would have said about you in the past. Uh, yes, I would have been in New York just schlepping a stroller around the city, and instead I have flown in, and I have I was just talking to you about the um, newly emergent, well, it always existed, but the newly uh, spiffified Lower East Side where I am staying and where Advertising Week is, and I feel like I'm visiting a foreign country. This is the classic old New Yorker thing to say, which is everything now looks the same and doesn't look anything like it, it used to in the old days. Exactly. That's Hence, true. publishing veteran, I believe, was the publishing phrase Publishing veteran. <laughs> so like I said, you've had a cool, interesting career. I want to Thank talk you. to you about that, but I want to start with the new stuff. The Ankler, which is what you're doing now. Yes. So I am a paying subscriber to The much. Ankler, but I subscribed before you showed up. I subscribed when it was Richard Rushfield's personal newsletter, his Substack. It was excellent. He was really a unique voice. He's a longtime Hollywood watcher and yep. he's really well sourced and would say smart things. I've talked to him on this podcast before. And then at some point you showed up and now you're the CEO of The Ankler and now you guys are in Y Combinator and now my. My inbox is full of like 10 Ankler newsletters. So explain to me what has happened and and what you want the Ankler to be. Sure. So you were among these early adopters of the Ankler. And uh, Richard did something that I would characterize – well, actually someone very senior in Hollywood characterized it to me this way. He wrote basically the weekly memo to Hollywood. And what was really – uh, special about it was that he was capturing a conversation that wasn't getting written about, that people were whispering about largely, um, and putting his thoughts down. And it started out as this like free newsletter he would send out to friends, a free email to friends. Some people suggested to him, hey, why did you charge for this? And he kind of took this leap of faith. And then like all these people signed up and started to pay for him. And this was like pre-everyone, like newsletters, newsletters, he, and he kind of rode that wave. And um, ended up becoming an important voice. And so it was mentioned to me as like, hey, you need to check this thing out. And I started to read it. And I knew Richard. Like Richard was someone like I had talked to when I was at The Hollywood Reporter. And I remember we would have conversations like, should we try to hire Richard? And people were like, oh, Richard would never want to do this. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And um, and so I kind of knew him in that way. We had first met at the Golden Globes, which um, was a long time ago. And so I became super enamored of the anchor. I thought it was so smart. And it did this thing that not many places can do. It also could make you laugh out loud. So all that makes sense. Yeah. And the great thing about newsletters, at least the way we were thinking about them a couple years ago, was you, an individual journalist or whomever – can write this thing, charge money for it, and depending on how it works, it might make you a living. Yeah. And so that's what was working for Richard. So why why me? Why, why are you involved? Okay, in so then I <laughs> so then I I start talking to Richard. I'm like, do you want to do something more with this? I think it's really special. And Richard's just like such a great guy. And he's really easy to talk to and deal with. And um no, I wouldn't say that. He can be actually be quite curmudgeonly with some people. But it's part of the part of the thing. Part of the DNA, part of the brand. And so then we started to talk and he's like, sure. And so I said, like, okay, well, let's figure out how we do something with this because I really think there's something there in the voice. There was something there. He gave me exposure to the subscriber list. It was pretty extraordinary. And meaning that there's moguls. Oh my God. It was like re- paying for it and reading for, it, it was, it was everybody. And it was, I think, you know, he, and he, and Richard's so unassuming. It just sort of happened. It wasn't one of these things where he put a market position on it. Like I'm going to reach the moguls. It was just that his conversation, the way he writes, 
his uh, insights were so smart that it spoke to a certain audience. And so Richard and I, I mean, it you know, so mom and pop, we sat down and we did a business plan. I will tell you the the person um, who we use called Entertainment Strategy Guy, who's now a writer for The Angler, he helped us put together the business plan. And, you know, we did that and then thought about who to partner with. But the business plan was because you've got – so like – this is like the cool neighborhood restaurant that someone is running because that's what they like to do. It turns out to be an excellent restaurant that lots of cool people go to. Great. Why do you want to do something else? That what's What was the plan to make that bigger? Because it often goes wrong once you start saying, and then we're going to franchise and then we're going to go to Las Vegas. Right. It's when the big, it's, yeah, it's when the big franchise owner comes in and tries to replicate it, right? It could have gone horribly wrong. But Richard had, he had his am- ambitions to do something more. And I think he saw the limitations of being a one-person operation. Like, how do I do something more? This was like the thick of the pandemic. His kids were home. And like he's like with his kids trying to get them on Zoom and like and he's like, okay, it would be nice to have a partner in this. And we thought like I think there were a couple of market forces at the time going on too. Like the Hollywood Reporter, which I did for a long time, had become part of the variety deadline universe. All owned by the same guy, Jay Penske. Owned by the same guy, Jay Penske. And so all of that, like it seemed to me editorially there was going to be a homogenization of voice, like inevitably, not not Deliberately, but that does happen. Yeah, just to emphasize, one person owns the two dominant Hollywood yes. trades. He now also owns Rolling Stone and Billboard. It's and you deadline. Can see, you can see why he wants to do that, but it means that literally, the, all the traditional people who reported on Hollywood now report to one person. Exactly, and and in fact, he had actually had conversations with Richard about buying the Ankler also. So I, you know, it was sort of like winner takes all was I think one of the one of the ways he was thinking about entertainment coverage. So but I saw an opportunity editorial wise to do something that was different. Um, but separate from that also a um, a business opportunity in sponsorship and advertising because um I think for anyone who follows the entertainment space, there's this category of advertising called for your consideration advertising, which is disproportionately lucrative based on because you're trying to reach a very small targeted audience. These are ads paid for by studios, generally networks targeted towards people who vote for Hollywood yes. awards, for the Oscars, for SAG, et cetera. Yes. And Richard already had that audience. And so it's this very hard to reach sort of, you know, pristine top of the pyramid audience that he had. These are the um, ads that you'll see coming up, like, you know, Steven Spielberg has the Fablemans. You will see that advertised endlessly uh, in awards campaigns in entertainment press and very likely the New York Times and places that- Starting to show up on podcasts. Yes. Yep. So we felt like we, you know, not everybody loves to give money to one person in place. And so we felt like creating uh, an alternative- around um, sponsorship dollars was also meaningful. And I think there was also a, you know, all the trends of media, um, like that people were also wanted a distillation of their content that people didn't necessarily want what had become really the trade practices of like the fire hose, 20 blasts an hour, um, but maybe a more curated experience in receiving their entertainment content. But I really, okay, so those were sort of the like practical, whatever, white spaces. But the other part that I thought was the really big editorial opportunity was entertainment was was beginning its 
you could say it began a long time ago, but really in the throes of its existential crisis. And like, who are we? What are we doing? Oh, my God, Netflix. Is Are there movies anymore? Are there movie theaters yeah. anymore? Yeah. And like, oh, that nice business we had for 100 years. Forget that. Wall Street wants us to grow subscribers and we're going to throw everything towards that. And so it and I think you saw these hierarchies of who had power, what was important in Hollywood completely upended. And when you couple that with um, these sort of social upheavals that also had gone on, I think it was just like almost a, you know, unfathomable amount of dislocation all at once. And I felt a little bit and I think in, you know, now in hindsight, it seems like it has paid off. Like I've likened it a little bit to like when Axios rode Trump's campaign and, you know, first term like you could that you could you could actually if you had, uh, you know, they launched right around yep. that time. And if you so if so you, they launched for the Trump interview. Yes. Yes. So if you could um, if you could own that narrative, there was a huge value to that audience. So I understand. OK, let's make a new entertainment um, business publication. Yes. It started as an email. Yeah. And now you're up to how many emails? Uh, Probably. If it's good. Depends on if people turn their things in and it gets out, but probably about uh, uh, maybe 10 to 11 a week. So, again, I enjoy reading Richard's stuff. I keep saying it. Thank you for it. Now I have 10 other emails from you guys coming into my inbox throughout the week. I also, by the way, have the same thing happening over at Puck where I'm, I'm paying to read Matt Bellany, among other folks. Uh, Semaphore just launched. Yep. We're going to talk to Ben Smith soon. He's wants me to subscribe to 10 newsletters. Well, tell me why you guys think newsletters are appealing ways to deliver things to me yeah. first. Well, I'll tell you, like when I was when I first started talking to Richard about it, Richard was very clear. He's like, I know who my audience is. I can call Bob Chapek Bob. I can, you know, I can do a shorthand with them and there's a presumed knowledge of um of who I'm addressing. And that's nice. Like you just know exactly who you're talking to. Um and you don't have to do that whole contextual thing of explaining the history of something. And so that is incredibly efficient. But also, like, I think one of the great things about the newsletter format is, like, you're just – you're very clear about what you are saying and, like, maintaining that open rate is incredibly important. So it's all about not wasting someone's time if they open that newsletter. So, you know, I did The Hollywood Reporter. We played this enormous scale game. And you, um, you know, I think at, at the peak when I was there, we had like 22 million visit uniques a month on comp score. And, you know, I think the business side of the operation at that time was uh, they wanted to do a programmatic advertising game and and you know it w- and it ends up constantly need to generate more oh page God. views and visits to bring in because the value of the ads you run on those things keep shrinking yep. day by day so you're constantly you're on spending this more to chase pennies yeah and um and it's an ex- and it's it's an unwinnable game so I get why the newsletter what you're really saying is subscriptions are better than. Ad- advertising, right? Thank you for getting to the point for me. Yes. So, so uh, oh, I'm rude like that's so nice. But so I get that. But why not just have a website where where Richard could write that same stuff and that same tone? It's just a subscription website. And if you, the well, Hollywood Insider, wants to read it, you go get it there as opposed to having it come to your so inbox. So I'm not going to say that's never going to happen. Uh-huh. I'm just saying this is how we got started. Richard was publishing on Substack. And I think one of the pivotal moments for us was Hamish McKenzie, one of the co-founders of Substack, um, he found out that Richard and I were trying to do something more with this. He came to us and he said, you know, don't leave Substack. You need to stay with us. 
And he made uh, he did two things first. You know, one of them was um, he introduced us to Mark Andreessen. We had a phone call with Mark Andreessen, and Mark Andreessen was like, he's like, don't take any partners. He's like, you need to what you need to do is you need to bootstrap this proof. You know, have proof of concept, and you will raise money on much better terms. Like, so Mark Andreessen, one of the most powerful men, period, in the mm-hmm. world, certainly one of the most powerful VCs in the world. Yeah gets on a call with you guys who yes. are running a single Substack yeah. to offer you advice about how to run your Substack yes. because he's an investor in Substack or what he's else? He's an investor in Substack yep. um, and you know he both I would say loves and hates media. Uh-huh. Uh, and so and I you know I won't reveal some of the other stuff we talked about but he you know but he He's very angry. Yeah yeah. <laughs> You said it. Um, and so we were we had it, but he was extremely helpful and he, like couldn't shake that thought off my out of my head. But the other thing that Hamish did, so why hey, Substack was also a Y Combinator company. Um, y Combinator was just about to realize like a pretty big windfall because the athletic had been a Y Combinator so company. Pause here. This is partly for Travis, but also some other people who listen to this podcast who may not know what Y Combinator Sorry. is. It's all right. Um, it's it's like graduate school or finishing school for for the most ambitious. Um, startup folks. Yeah. So it is, It is as well, as their own language has the leading seed accelerator of Silicon Valley. So it's been the birthplace of Airbnb, Dropbox, Instacart. Substack. Coinbase, Substack. Yeah. Um, like You go there, the idea is they're going to put you in this boot camp yeah. for X number of weeks. They're going to um, they're going to get some of your equity. Yep. Um, you can debate whether that's a good deal or not. And then the idea is then once you've succeeded there, you you are now blessed by Y Combinator. People want to throw money at you. Yes. Um, and that's that's the trade. Yes. So Richard and I, like, we're both like It's normally 22-year-old dudes from Stanford. Oh my God. Right? So Hamish suggests he calls Y Combinator. Y Combinator calls us and asks us to apply. And so we have You this, say you know that we're not 22. Uh, exactly. I did, maybe I put on a hoodie, but yeah. like we um and so we have this call with Y Combinator and like like our partner who called us uh, is this great guy, Brad Flora, who works at Y Combinator. And Brad, like Brad was like, you need to stop thinking about being like a hundred million dollar company, which I'm like, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's like, think bigger and we will help you think bigger. And, you know, I won't reveal everything he said, but here are some things that like I would like to see you do. So really you, you because again, if you build a hundred million dollar media company in any era, but definitely now. You, you really succeeded. That's good. And Y Combinator is built right to have these giant home runs because yes. it's a very valley thing, and so there's, they're not interested in hundred million dollar companies. Because that's nothing. That's, that's like not worth their time. They need you to get to your sofa. Right, yeah, they need to get you to billions of dollars. Yes. Usually, it doesn't work out for media companies with that ambition. Well, so they they have taken very few media companies. So the only media companies they've ever taken were Substack, uh, Reddit, The Athletic. Autumn, the AUDM, uh, and us. And so um, I think, you know, it, se- it seemed to me they wanted to, they liked what happened with The Athletic. They wanted to do The Athletic for entertainment. Um, and so we entered that, we entered the Y Combinator program. It was all on Zoom. As you noted, we are not 22 years old. So it was, there were, I think, just two classes of Y Combinator that weren't, did, that didn't have to go live in San Francisco. And so we were able to do it on Zoom. And they do this thing that is both really scary, but kind of amazing, where they like, you're, they're like, you need to grow now. Go. The You know, the gun goes off. You need to grow as quickly as you can in the next seven weeks. And we did. And we grew super fast. And so, you know, in the transaction where I officially became involved with Richard, 
uh, I, the the angler had a valuation of one million dollars, um, and w- by the time we raised at the end of Y Combinator, we raised at a valuation of twenty million dollars. So it was like they helped us do that, and so I am eternally grateful to them. Bunch of people run media companies, run media businesses. Listen to this podcast. Yes, you said you managed to figure out how to grow really fast in seven weeks. That seems like advice a lot of people would like to know. So what is the magic secret to growing really fast in seven well, weeks? Well, it was completely shambolic. Like it was not. I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm not proud of everything we did, but like it was basically like, let's just post more. Like Richard, like during the pandemic, Richard was maybe some days, like some, some, for some periods of time, not even writing like once every 10 days. And so, you know, certain people like entertainment strategy guy got involved with us and we we put him, you know, we made him an official. You added more writers. We added more writers. And also some of this was not making the angler just dependent on Richard, right? Like, you know, I mean, if Richard or I get hit by a bus, we would like this to keep, you know, keep going. And um, and so then we brought on this person who's so fantastic, Sean McNulty, to do the Wake Up newsletter, um, which is a morning daily newsletter. We thought it was essential to try to bring some habit into the Ankler. I met him years ago. He's trying to do that as a podcast. I'm like, yeah. I don't think that's going to work. No. But it works really well as a newsletter. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, let's see. You know, Peter Kiefer became a contributing editor who um, probably a lot of your audience knows him as the person who, who did the Shar Ali story for Los Angeles Magazine. Um, and, you know, one of the big stories he did during our growth phase, I believe it was then, was um, uh, the story about Elizabeth Finch, the writer from Grey's Anatomy, who um, was, uh, it was alleged by Disney and Shondaland that she was fabricating huge parts of mm-hmm. her life. Um, and so it was sort of just imp- like increasing the cadence of that. And one of the things that we saw working for us right away, because remember, like when we were in this growth phase, Netflix reports first quarter earnings and like it sets like entertainment into a tailspin. And this is just this year when, yeah, they, when just they this freaked year. everybody out. Free- and so like one of the things we saw resonating, and I think this was the, the difference for me, that was sort of an aha moment, which is maybe obvious to people who've been running, you know, high paid subscriptions, uh, high cost paid subscriptions, is that like it wasn't it's not the ephemeral stuff. It's not like, you know, little news bits, but the, the, these deeply reported analytical pieces that help people do their jobs. I'm going to pay you for something that's going to help me. And it's transactional because if I'm not – there's some there's a version of Substack and some publications where you you pay because you want to support them and you want right. to identify as a New Yorker person with the New Yorker tote bag. Sure. Or you pay for Barry Weiss because you hate the New York Times or whatever yes. it is. But this is <laughs> – I want to. I want to get smarter about my business. Well, I think you. I think you probably have heard the same thing, Peter, as as we hear all the time. Like nobody knows what they're doing, from like the lowest levels to the CEO suites, and like it is just, it's a, it's really, probably at no time in the entertainment space have people felt less sure of themselves. And so, um, one of the interesting things that's also happened is that it's become a data driven town, right? And you know, an interesting thing that. Uh, that Someone said to me who works at one of the significant streaming services in town said the other day that they never talk internally anymore about – they never say like, oh, my God, did you see what The Hollywood Reporter said or Variety said? Or, and they don't care what the critics say anymore because they have their own internal set of data. And like I think you can look at you know Dahmer as a recent example of that with Netflix. Like, you know – 
tons of stories don't love it amoral to do this re-victimizes the victims audience was like love it and um and so they used it to yesterday in their earnings to point out why why binging works for them and they held up a google trends chart comparing that to the lord of the rings prequel and the game of thrones prequel which had enormous enormous budgets and you know big big bets and said no no Dahmer's doing better than those well i think that to me, that whole Netflix earnings video um, was a it was just a rebuke of all the media that's been telling them what they think they should do. And not just the media, right? That's everyone in Hollywood. Everyone in Hollywood has that same diagram. I remember in media is just repeating what people in Hollywood tell them. Yes. Which is, they should do all the things that we have been doing right. for a long time. See, our old way was better. Yeah. And and uh, and so I felt like I think we used we described it as Netflix was dunking on the competition yesterday, which they, you know, I think one of those old fashioned roles of business is you never discuss the competition. Mm-hmm. And yesterday at that on that earnings call, they were like, we, we make money. You don't. Our shows are higher on Google Trends, whatever that means. And um, so there. Yeah, they pick whatever metric helps that yeah, day. Right? They, exactly. Sometimes they do. Uh, what's it? What's uh, Rotten Tomatoes, et cetera. Right, but but, yeah. th- but back to my point, yes. like that is the that's the power of data in the entertainment space now, and that is where we have seen a lot of um, subscriber acquisition. So back to my container question, which is, I have a relationship with Richard. I read his stuff. If I know he wrote it, I open that email. But I'm also getting ten other emails yes. from you. I don't have relationships with those folks. But again, like I've got an inbox full of related publications that sure. you're competing with. In addition, you guys send me summary emails saying, yep. here's what we put out this week. Yep. And it's a tragedy of the commons. The more that comes in, the less likely I am to open any of them. And again, I'm still going to open Richards and yep. Matt's and a few others. But I wonder how you think about getting – it seems like a structural problem that that email has fundamentally if you want to scale it up. So this is one of the problems we're trying to solve for. Like I think that um, – we need the flexibility. There is a way in our existing infrastructure where you can pick what you want to get and what you don't want to get. Mm-hmm. But to find that, <laughs> to find that um, page that lets, you, that lets you do that is incredibly challenging. I think Substack was built as a you know one writer, one yep. audience platform, and so we are a multi-writer platform and we so we need to solve for that or also you read richard but also we wrote this interesting thing right now you and everyone else says go open that newsletter and you can read about it but i don't want to open the other newsletter just tell me the interesting thing that so-and-so put eight paragraphs down yeah i just want to know that right i'm paying for it just tell me so i would say that you may be a very loyal richard rushfield reader but we have a lot of loyalty for the other audience that might, and you. This is what the puck guys tell me too. When <laughs> I have the same discussion with them. <laughs> well, it's but yeah, we don't. But we don't. Um, the other writers have a very loyal audience, like Sean McNulty. The Wake Up Morning Newsletter. Is, I open Sean's too. Yeah, yeah Sean's is great. Um, ESG has its audience. Do I expect everyone to open everything? No, but the open rates are pretty consistent. Yeah, I, I, I guess. I guess I'm just thinking of the the long lost art of magazines where you'd pick it up and you'd browse and you knew maybe there because the cover told you there was an article about something yep. midway through but there was a front of the book that had interesting stuff and you just, you'd have serendipity and now because your the email is siloed you lose that and i don't think we're getting magazines back right probably not getting general broad websites back so I'm a little stuck at sort of where we go from here. Where do we go from here? I, I don't have that answer. Okay. Except that I think that 
until our audience cries uncle and says, oh, my God, please don't send me another thing. We are going to try to solve for. And you'll see that in the open rates. We'll absolutely see it in the open rates. We haven't seen it. Like it's grown. We've grown. Uh, let me think. We are up. We've grown subscription revenue more than I think 350 percent. I know almost actually almost 400 percent this year. So we've seen a lot of uh, adoption of the angler. So mentioning Puck, there's mm-hmm. you guys, and then yeah. there's this traditional world that you used to be in sure. of, of trade press that is now owned by Jay Penske. Yeah. Do you see them reacting to what you guys are doing? I see them sometimes following the stories we do. They don't really ever give us links or credit, which mm-hmm. is fine. That's that's like the doggy dog world of like the small world of journalism out there. Um, but I think they do something. It's interesting. Someone yesterday described it to me. They've almost... Um, They've almost uh, reverted to old-time trade journalism. Like, I think that... So-and-so is connected to this project. Yes. It's, it's like, it's, you know... And Which it's, is of value it's to people a, in that industry. It's completely of value. So it's sort of like, you know, if you subscribe to Holly Reporter Deadline Variety, it's almost like these ticker tapes that go by all day of, like, you know, endless email blasts. And there's kind of, like, no modulation about what's more important or not important. But it's it's, you know... That's it's kind of like how you process the incremental news of Hollywood all day long. Um, Remember when Inside.com tried oh to do God. this back in 2000? Except the pages never loaded, so you could never read pages it. Pages never loaded. And I was told by a lot of because I was fascinated by this. I really wanted to go work there, and I remember and I was starting to visit Hollywood like you know every couple of months. Um, and people saying, no, no, this will never work because the people that this stuff is in theory talking about and addressed to don't read the internet and their assistants print out their emails huh. for them. Well, I think that still happens with some some ilk in Hollywood. Um, but uh, so I what I, so we we link to the trades all the time and you know I think Sean in the wake up newsletter always does. Um, but what so in our small four four staff member operation right now like we um, we uh, by necessity, really, because of how limited we are in our uh, staff, like we really take this sort of, you know, an analytical 30,000 square feet above trying to tie the, all it, all of it together and tell the narrative of what's happening. And um, that, I think, is something that the trades don't do and haven't done. So um, and seems to obviously there seems to be a fast growing audience around that. Do you want do you want to break out? From that, do you want to break out and have people who aren't in Hollywood and aren't making money in Hollywood and don't aspire to be in Hollywood reading you um, in sort of a general interest yeah, way, well, like I you mean, did at the Hollywood Reporter? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, we we have that. Uh, I mean, obviously, the core audience is like the C-suite class of the entertainment business. And, you know, name one. Uh, brand name executive, you know, and I guarantee they are a paid subscriber to the Ankler. But we also we've been having. I don't think we will never be as big as the Hollywood Reporter, um, and uh, I think where we are seeing a lot of success is Silicon Valley because now Silicon Valley and entertainment are so entwined. Um, we are seeing um, Wall Street and uh, venture capital. Uh, coming on board in a big way and obviously other media because other media will subscribe to lots of things um <laughs> and uh so i think we will we'll have influence in that regard I, I i think what 
Growing forward, I think one of the challenges is how do we grow broader? How do we create separate products to bring in people that, while we still super serve the core? Like if we lose that C-suite audience, then, you know, it becomes a very different thing. So you're running a four-person media operation that really is sort of micro-targeting its yes. audience and making a go of it. Are, yes. you, are you profitable? Yes. Amazing. Good yeah. for you. Let's talk about the other version of your career back in 2003? Yeah, Is that when you started at, at Us Weekly? Yeah. So describe what publishing was like in 2003 oh and what Us, because I, I think it will blow people's minds because I'm, I'm serious. Us Weekly was a really, really, really big deal in yeah, 2003. It was the the bomb. It was the thing. And it's funny because now Jan Wenner's doing his you know tour, tour yeah. of, of every media outlet in the world. And so it's, it's sort of fun to hear him talk. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I was like nobody, nobody. And I was the number two to Bonnie Fuller. Who, How did if, you get that job? You know, Bonnie Fuller had offered me a job at Glamour once before. I had been at Time, Inc. So this is, this is back when magazine publishing was a glamour. Oh, I my moved God. here to then 1997 to go work in magazines because yeah. that seemed like a really cool thing it was to do. the thing and remember like when keith kelly would like it would be like ed trixes i believe it was what was a term he used for female editors um, Ed editors period of magazines were celebrities, celebrities at least in new york not sad sacks like we are now yeah. right so it was uh like celebrities and um and so bonnie was one of these like you know, one of these page six, Keith Kelly staples, every last move. Oh, my God, is she going to Cosmo? I mean, like all of that stuff. And so she ended up. So Jan Wenner. It's owner one, of Rolling Stone. Owner of Rolling Stone, editor of Rolling Stone. So he had done this acquisition of of Us Monthly, um, which had had this long, weird history of being owned by the New York Times. And then Jan took full ownership. And then he decided um, because it was considered an ATM. It's a cash machine if you could have made a weekly publication work then. The money just rolls in. And the problem was Jan was not making it work. And it was actually, the and the flip side of that is you hemorrhage money if you don't make it work. And so he brought in Bonnie who- You made your money by selling physical individual copies. copies. Well, I'll tell you more yeah. about that. It was so crazy. And so he brings in Bonnie and, uh, you know, Gets a lot of attention. Bonnie gives a, a initial jump to it. Still not profitable. And Bonnie and Jan did not see eye to eye. And then but she made it instantly relevant. Basically, people were following. They were like, "Okay, what's she going to do? Because that's going to be." And if you wanted to learn about what Britney Spears was doing, yep. Or whomever, yep. or a, a Simpson, Ashley Simpson. It is, this like was even this was even before before but the that, Simpsons. It's but that, that yes, it's that era that you would you would it was People Magazine had that. But yeah. they didn't really have competition. And then Us Weekly showed up. And yeah, so, Us Weekly was like the little sister, right? Yeah, and, and edgier and yeah, more fun. And um, stars, they're just like us. Yes, and so remember, we were writing like right at that moment, and I think in hindsight we realize this now, like it was the birth of reality television and this kind of democratization of celebrity, right? Anyone could become famous, Survivor, American Idol, like Us Weekly was launching right when those shows were coming on air. Bonnie sort of was able to get into that cadence. She and Jan blew up after 14 months. I was on my first vacation the whole time I'd been working for Bonnie. In Italy, I get a call from Jan. Do you want to be the editor? I, you know, I'm like 32, 31 years old at the time. Did like, you aspire to be an no, editor? No, Did I'm you just, no. Be, what was your plan? I don't know. I just wanted to like. You lived in New York. And yeah, I lived in New York. Job. I just wanted to like have a job and be a journalist. And like, and so it was terrifying to me. And, um, and also because I saw... 
how Bonnie was just put through the meat grinder almost every day, like what she wore, what she looked like in the locker room at her gym. I mean, like really crazy stuff. But I ended up saying yes. And then it became it just like just like met the moment and like took off. And it became so, you know, I think uh, there was a point at Us Weekly, if you sold more than 550,000 copies on a newsstand, which seems comical now, you started to make money. Every issue above 550,000, you I think the publisher got a dollar 87 or something. And so I grew it. So it was selling at some points like 1.3 million copies a week on the newsstand. And this is so old timey. Like you would on Monday morning, you would come in with um, scan data from Walmart and like Hudson News and Target. And you would know exactly how your issue sold. And um, and uh, and like then the, on the advertising front. So it had this really crazy demo reading it. It was 32-year-old women. It was like me, 32-year-old women. It became the most read magazine in California, you know, most educated audience of publishing, one of the highest household incomes. It was crazy. None of it, you know, none of it seemed to make sense to a lot of other people in publishing, but it, it definitely became this pastime of like young professional women and so our ad sales team, uh, they could sell an ad page in Us Weekly for $90,000 a page. So I think at some point, I think the, it was the publication was making like $350 million in revenue a year. So I was not in the demo, but yeah. I definitely knew people who were, and they were buying your magazines. Yeah. And I was a little confused. I'm like, wait, this is 2003, 2004, yeah. 2005. The dot-com bubble has come and gone, but the internet is here it doesn't really seem like this is the kind of thing that is going to be a sustainable business. Did you guys see that inside that that the internet was going to carve out your business, or did you have a plan for Not succeeding in the no, internet? Yeah, no, Jan was like, like hated the internet, hated internet, and like, and I think it's you, this this is story of every industry, including you know Hollywood and Netflix. Like, no, we, like, we're not changing our business for that. Like people still like going to movie theaters. Oh, guess what? They actually don't or not as much as you think they do. And so and so the money was so like was rolling in. And if you remember, Disney owned half of Us Weekly yep. at the time. And Disney was, you know, times, you know, involved, not involved. But um, so now I'll fast forward to um, 2007, um, which I think you know what year comes after that. So 2007 and Jan, the, uh, Jan had been entertaining this deal to sell everything to Hearst. Um, but it was doing so well that he was like, nope. And, Not um, selling this cash cow. Uh, nope. And so, in, and also I'm going to buy back my half of Us Weekly from uh, Disney for $300 million. So Us Weekly had a valuation of, I guess, six. One of the worst media deals. No comment, but six hundred million. You know, it had a valuation of six hundred million dollars, and then two thousand eight happened, and it was. I mean, that was the turning point for everything. It was just, you know, advertising collapsing. I mean, everything. How much of that model of here is a weekly magazine about famous people that mm -hmm. we're going to package for you and yeah. put cool photos and saucy captions? The demise of that, how much of that is, well, that's just something we get on the internet now. We can get that on the internet versus the way we think about celebrity and interact with celebrity and the fact that, uh, you know, someone on TikTok can just start talking about Olivia Wilde and sort of the yeah. change. It's not just the, it, the delivery. It's it's who's making it and what they're interested it's, in. It's all of it, right? You lost the gatekeeper necessary to tell you about celebrity and show you pictures of celebrity. Um, so there was that. Because anyone with a smartphone could take that picture. Yes. So there was that part of it. But also, like, I could feel this cultural change happening. People just didn't care as much. Like, do you remember when, like, 
really smart people would sit around at a dinner table and talk about Brad and Angelina and Jen mm-hmm. and like have real opinions or, you know, JLo and Ben version one. Like, and they it, would strike deals with you guys or or people about who was going to yeah, get pictures the of them. Yeah, exclusives of babies. The, and, yep. and I mean, it was pretty wild. Like it was this weird, like, uh, like mass hysteria for, I would say, for a decade that took over. And I have my theories about why. And, you know, I, I've always thought it was a like an ext- like you know, 9-11 happened and everyone's like, oh my God, it's the death of fun. Or like it's a, the end of cynicism. It's a, you know, it's a new world. And then like, then like The Bachelor and Joe Millionaire launch and Us Weekly takes off. And to me, I've always viewed that aughts decade as like the decade of like mass avoidance. Just like we, these narratives we see are so awful. 9-11, two wars that most that Americans did not support. Um, and uh, I feel like we're in the, we're still in the mass avoidance. Phase. We are. But we now we're just putting our avoidance somewhere else. Okay. But but that these other stories, like part of the reason, like I think about this all the time, like Americans, like human beings just love stories. Like we built whole entire industries out of stories and telling them. And and anyway, that was the object of the deflection then. What was your peak year for being a, a New York powerful editrix when when did you have the most juice when did i have the most juice i mean it was like the whole us weekly era was pretty crazy like it was just like how does that manifest let's see sometimes there'd be like weirdo stalkers showing up at the building um so, so they want to talk to you or they just yeah they want to talk yeah. talk to me um they knew would, who you were yeah and it would be like going to restaurants and people would like comp your meal because they recognized you um it would be um but it was just more like Oh, my God. Everyone like there was this whole hilarious thing where if you got a product placed in Us Weekly, you know, we did like covered fashion and beauty, like it would sell out. It would become a whole thing. And, you know, someone who worked with an advertising agency. So they even had a name. They created an archetype for the Us Weekly reader. And I think it was like Amber. Or I mean, they made up something like, of course, it was Amber. And so um, but that the but like it was like so so that would mean like. You know, we had this beauty closet. We would do a we would do a sale for charity of all the like ridiculous products that came in. I mean, it was like, you know, we had these events and <laughs> Donald Trump and Melania came when they're pre pre White House. To, to be days. fair, they showed up they, yeah, anywhere they, where there the, was a camera. Yes, I right. I'm not flattering myself with that one, I guess. Um, but you know, I was I was on the Today Show. Like, remember, it wasn't just us who became celebrity. It wasn't us weekly that was celebrity obsessed. There were times I was on the Today Show five days a week, like because. These show, these stories were like they diverted media's attention for the decade as well. Did you like being a well-known? No, I, I did not like it at all. Actually, I found it kind of unnerving. Like I'm a pretty low-key person. I don't really go out, and you know, I I think if you anyone who knows me knows, like I don't really go out. I don't go to events. I hate having my picture taken. Like all those things. So. um I don't know. It was like there was so much momentum. It was like I that all those years were like a blur to me. You know, it just was like this incredible ride. I'm like incredibly grateful to Jan for giving me that chance to do that. The blur ends. You go to the Hollywood Reporter, yeah. 2009, 2010. That is a stayed dead dead. Oh, you read it just because you're obliged to, or usually because it's sitting on a coffee table in a waiting room. It's like having a giant brown vitamin waiting for you every day that you are. That you might swallow. And the plan was, I'm going to bring some of that celebrity juge that I, I have and make this, not celebrity, but I'm going to, I know how to reach people who are normal yeah. people. And I'm going to, I'm going to make this so it's a more relevant trade, but also that people who don't live here, right. don't well, live in I LA mean, can read it. I think, 
I think you're seeing my the shrinking of my target audience because it went from like biggest magazine, one of the biggest magazines in America to a much more concentrated like uh, entertainment audience and now like the top of that entertainment audience. But um, for Hollywood Reporter, it was like it was such a flyer. And, you know, truthfully, I took the job because my husband and I wanted to live in California and we were kind of done with New York, even though I love New York and miss it. And so, uh, you know, private money had bought these Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, Adweek, um, some trade shows from Nielsen. And um, there had been layoffs, layoffs, layoffs. Um, uh, I, they reached out to me to see if I would like to come in and make this over. And I mean, I, there was not a single person in the world who thought this was a good idea. They were like, oh, it's dead. It's stupid. Don't do it. Why would you do that? And I just felt like and it was interesting when they described what they wanted to do with it. It like just clicked in my head. I'm like, oh, I get that. I can do that. I see how you do that. It was more bringing this, you know, Los Angeles has had a pretty like mixed media history. Like it doesn't have a very large publishing community. They didn't have Edtrixes. And um, and so I I brought sort of this New York publishing metabolism packaging um, ambition to this very sleepy daily trade paper that was then converted to uh, this like sort of glorious vanity feeding publication and a website that when I started, it was so small, it wasn't measured by Comscore. I think it had under 600,000 uniques a month. And then, you know, like I said earlier in the podcast, 22 million uniques on Comscore. You had a long run there. What worked for you? What didn't work? Let's see what worked. News. <laughs> news obviously works for everyone. Um, news and, uh, and I'll, glory. It really kind of captured the imagination. And I, I, there was this whole thing in the back of my mind when I started like, okay, there are all these executives. And if you recall, this was the time of Jeff Zucker, Conan O'Brien, and Jay Leno and mm -hmm. that whole debacle and that becoming a national story and Jeff Zucker becoming this known, you know, villain, I guess, to some yep. people. And, um, and I'm like, okay, so all these executives are behind the scenes and they're not getting their due, but they all want their due. And so how do we actually write about the business and give those people their due? But also, I think, you know, there's a lot of New York bias against Los Angeles, yep. like stupid people, like, you know, spray tans, fake eyelashes, you know, and some parts of that you see, I'm obviously. Nodding, yeah. yep. <laughs> nodding vigorously. And, um, and uh, so one of the ways we approached it was like, how do you report on this like a real business and turn this into real reporting and not make it this like not feed into this notion that like entertainment's a joke, that it's just luck. And a lot of it is luck. There's actual thought and process and it's an actual industry. And, you know, the other fact that always stood out to me is that entertainment is the single greatest export out of the United States. So it's sort of like, why was the media so small, but the business was so big? And how like, how can we bridge that gap? And it took off like so fast right away. And, and and the other thing I noticed that you did from afar was like, well, we have access to all these yes. famous people that mm -hmm. people care about. Let's let's put them on the covers of our publication. Well, let's interview them. Let's do profiles of them. It was crazy. One of my first meetings there, um, there was a writer there who'd been there forever named Stephen Galloway. Um, and, you know, Matt Bellany was his number two. They'd been working there like seven years together in this like little trade factory that wasn't doing great. And I remember um, I can't Brad Pitt's name came up for some reason. I think maybe it was when Moneyball was out. And my um, and Stephen was like, oh, I'll just call his um, his manager and I'm sure I can jump on the phone with him. I'm like, 
what? And so it was this uh, this because of these longtime relationships, they were able to bypass the machinery of the publicist that I think so much of New York publishing had been beholden to. You had to convince you know, someone from PMK or mm-hmm. some PR firm to do something. And they had such direct access and they never fully understood how to exploit that. And so it was just this gold mine waiting to be exploited there. And also knowing that what a lot of the talent wanted was they wanted to be written about their careers seriously, be photographed gloriously. They wanted a Vanity Fair treatment. Yeah. Yeah. But more businessy mm-hmm. about about their career. Um, the rap on you from your competitors mm-hmm. was she made this this really nice looking thing, but it's expensive and it doesn't make money. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Um, I would say that my mandate when I started was to make like and I this sound I, I don't mean this to sound like it is going to sound, but like there was no there were no there was no mandate other than to make this fantastic. And I think Todd Bowley was the owner at the time. And now you, I think you, some of your audience knows him for buying Chelsea, the Premier League team. It's for the Dodgers. The Dodgers. Um, and he – so he looked at The Hollywood Reporter as an entree into the media entertainment space in in Los Angeles. And he also at the time and still does owned Dick Clark Productions, which produces the Golden Globes. And he sort of had this whole vision of media, entertainment, sports that he – wanted to lean into. And the Hollywood Reporter gave immediate influence and entree into those worlds. So you did you did you did the work that you were intended to I do. did the work I was asked to do. And I never ran the business side on at at the Hollywood Reporter. So that was a successive a succession of different people. You leave there after a long run. You appear again briefly mm-hmm. eleven at, months. At Quibi. Mm-hmm. You were there for 11 months? 11 months. You made 11 months. There's been reporting about what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Quibi itself wasn't successful. Um, why did you leave? So I will not go into it except to say, you know, I'm not surprised by what happened in the, in the ultimate end of it. Did so. you think going in, you were going to basically run sort of news for yeah. the idea? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that like, I think what's unfair is that People who say, like, it always sounded like a terrible idea. Everything is a terrible idea until it works. Right. right? And so there's I, different versions of terrible ideas. There, <laughs> I know you are not a believer. I, I think was I, not. I, I, think I listened I to many you. pitches. Yeah. Well, but I was like, this seems like a thing that Jeffrey Katzenberg would like to be true as opposed to what his theoretical audience wants. Well, I think you saw a reaction in the media to uh, to that confidence. I guess I'll say. But yeah, the like, media. But the, again, like like we've been saying, it doesn't matter whether the media likes it. Or the audience didn't like it. There was no audience that wanted to pay for that stuff. And on top of that, they didn't. It was striking because it launched during the pandemic. But that's also when TikTok hit, and TikTok was paying no money to yeah. create this stuff, and right. people liked and that it took stuff. Off. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the that that seemed to be you didn't need to have feelings about Jeffrey Katzenberg or anything else. You could go, well, this one works and that one doesn't. Yeah. Well, I think it tells you a lot about, you know, it's just speaking generally. I think everyone wants to convert to a Silicon Valley star. Everyone wants, you know, that. And I think those, you know, if, if you recall, the markets then were just like going crazy up, up, up. Mm-hmm. And um, and, you know, I think you could probably look at the rise of, you know, well, the then rise of Snap and Meta and uh, and think like, oh, my, like, 
I want part of that. And so, but, you know, investors also rewarded them. They gave them a huge amount of money. It was, you know, so at some point along the food chain and life cycle, people endorsed it. But did Just you, not the consumer. <laughs> yeah. So, but so obviously, when you went when you went into Quibi, you thought it would work, and by the time you left, you did not think it would work. I won't say that, but I would say that. I mean, obviously, I thought it was an interesting opportunity. I like. I had been like a daily, weekly journalist for my entire career, and like I was just exhausted by it, like exhausted by it. And um, like, I think today I would say it was just like total burnout. And like, I wouldn't have said that then. I would have been like, no, like I'm going to like, no, I'm totally fine. But I was just so burnt out by the whole thing. I saw you a couple times in between Quibi and, and the Ankler. Yeah. And my sense was that you were going to go when you wanted to take a cool job yeah. at a big company that was going to pay you well. Yeah. Not that much risk. Right. Um, Not that it was going to be a cake job but yeah. just that like you weren't gonna like be breaking your back and now you're running a four-person startup yeah i mean i guess it was sort of one of those things and like i mean if i had a list of every job that came my way and you're like you kind of think about it and you're like oh that could be fun and um and there was this funny moment like a little while ago where Howard Stern said on air he had tried he was thought about hiring me and he had never reached out to me but i was like okay that would have made that would have been fun but um but like I don't know. There's something. He said, I, I wanted to hire Janice Min. He said not that the on, lady from Us Weekly. No, or he said my name, Fantastic. and I was I was like super excited because um, I've never met Howard Stern. Um, and so I don't know. Like I think, and I was like, something will speak to me when it happens when I when I want to do it, and like that kind of spoke to me. And I'm like, okay, like so maybe I want to do my own thing. Maybe I want to be my own boss. Maybe I want to like control like my own destiny of how this works or doesn't work. And I also just like love the content, like. I love what we produce and what Richard produces. Advice to other people who are well into their career who might not have ever thought of running or working at a four-person startup or something. Because that seems the kind of thing you do when you're young, when you can take on risk, when if it, it goes belly up, it doesn't matter because you're eating ramen anyway. Um, right. You don't have a mortgage. Yeah. Um, what are you learning approaching this as, you know, your fifth, sixth, seventh job? I'm learning you have to do everything yourself. <laughs> Is what I'm learning, but I'm um, also like, uh, like I I like knowing the audience. I like going through the list of who our subscribers are and seeing like, and in knowing the audience. And I I like this. Um, I like controlling a business side too, which I have never done before. And um, and being able to sort of like run your little family business and uh, decide where you're spending money and you know are you buying uh, Oreos or goldfish at the market and like and who's going to take the garbage out you yeah I, I will take the garbage out I will make the garbage and I will take it out it's I think one of the things that I'm really grateful to Substack for is like oh you can just like invent something and an audience will come and then it becomes a thing and you know one of the things I think has really revealed how how much um, impact the anklers had in a short period of time in Los Angeles. Like Richard and I are like, we're the most important people to meet in Hollywood right now. I'm kind of joking, but like every CEO calls, they want to meet, they want to talk. And like, and so we're kind of in the tour of the tour of power. I mean, you're on the Recode Media podcast. I mean, my God, this is gonna, I'm going to get inundated after this. So, um, but by the way, people really like you out there. It's weird, right? It's weird. No one likes me who knows me. <laughs> They think you're very, very smart. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, we'll continue to not disabuse them. Yeah. <laughs>
So anyway, that's that's where we are. I would like to, you know, I hope you have me back in a year and I can tell you we have, you know, that we've grown even more, bigger, better. Yeah, the other I'll do name, that. So. I, I, I want to hear about that. Okay. Um, thanks for coming on. This is oh great. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Janice Bin. Thanks to Matt Levine. Thanks to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing the show and our sponsors who bring me this show and a bonus show this week for free for zero dollars. What a deal. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon.